The Vancouver School of Theology is located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. Welcome to um, the Bruderholz again, and uh, I want to welcome our guest today, Professor Harry Meyer. I'm accompanied here today by Todd uh, Weeb, and uh, our program is produced by Allison Williams, so we're very grateful oh. for all the support we get. Um, t- today, um, Harry Meyer is going to speak to us about his life and work here at the Vancouver School of Theology. Harry has taught at the Vancouver School of Theology as a professor for 25 years and as a lecturer for even longer than that. So he has been around the school for some years and uh, knows the and ins looks, and outs it of look, the place. great, too, still. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> I dressed up oh, for yeah, this. I know. And Harry is is a well-known scholar in his area. Harry's professor of New Testament and early Christian studies and uh, is concentrating his teaching efforts there these days. That wasn't always the case, but he's actually teaching in the area that he most loves uh, these days. Mm -hmm. Um, He has written a lot around the uh, influences on Christianity uh, during its time in the Roman Empire and what that means for exegesis, for understanding the New Testament. He's written a wonderful book on the book of Revelation, and I think that has probably brought Harry the most invitations to speak. People love Mm. to speak about the end of human history. That's right. Um, Some really interesting projects he's working on these days uh, on uh, iconography, uh, on issues of violence in the New Testament, and also a a project for preachers uh, uh, around the theme of visual exegesis and how art uh, can be a source for understanding and proclaiming uh, the gospel. So without further ado, Harry, uh, let me ask you, uh, I just mentioned it, but uh, how long have you taught at VST, and uh, why do you do it? That's a long time to teach. Yeah, well, I started here in 1990, and then I became a full-time professor in 1994, Mm -hmm. and quite honestly, I thought I was going to end up at a Lutheran seminary, but Mm -hmm. that's not what God had in mind Mm -hmm. for me, Mm -hmm. so I ended up here at VST, and I think that in 1990, when I first arrived here, I discovered the thing that has kept me here, and that is that the world very, very much matters to VST. That is to say that theology always must be done with a face to the world. Um, sometimes in some theology, you get the sense that there could be a nuclear bomb that went off outside the door, <laughs> and you would never know anything about it theologically, whereas here at this school we're very much concerned about bringing theology to life and life to theology and um, that was uh, just invigorating for me Um, and that's one of the first things that struck me the very first semester I was here of how engaged socially students were. Uh, Lutherans tend to be more quietistic um, but not here, not here. So in 25 years of teaching, um, what, have you, what has changed about the students that you're teaching? Uh, they're a lot younger, but then again, I'm a lot older. Um, so, um, yeah, when I started teaching here in uh, 1990, I was the youngest person in the classroom by a decade or more, two decades even. Um, and then I noticed, and, and that really continued really up until the early 2000s, and uh, something is happening 
in that we have far younger students who are coming here. What I mean by far younger, I mean students that are pretty much out of university or after a master's degree or something like that. Mm. <clears throat> that makes for a different, very, very different kind of dynamic mm. in the life of the school. Mm-hmm. How's that affected uh, life in the classroom? Uh, it means that I have to be a lot more savvy about social media and I have to update my jokes <laughs> so that um, <laughs> my, my F troop um, references and my Green Acres um, <laughs> comments um, or my Gilligan's Island <laughs> song repertoire no longer quite has Just a certain... Right the, back and read. Exactly right. It, it doesn't have the same kind of cachet that it used to have back in the day. So, um, but students are very lively. I mean, one of the things that's very different, mm. I think, now is that because there has been this sort of dancing with dinosaurs moment that everybody was talking about back in the 1990s about how the church is going to die and how the last Anglican is going to leave the church in 2005 and so on and so forth. These sort of dire apocalyptic prognostications. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, God has a different idea about what is happening with the church. And what's happening with the church is that God is raising up or bringing forward a dynamic new set of leaders who do not assume Christendom, who don't assume the same things that people like you and I would have assumed when we started entering the ministry, Richard, back when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth. And dancing. And dancing. And (laughs) dancing with the dinosaurs, exactly. Now I have to sing a Bernie song. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Now, if you say that you've noticed that students are younger than when you first came in, I would assume that they're looking for something different than, than those students before at a different age. Um, what do you feel about that? What is it they're hoping to get out of being at VST and taking courses from you? Do you think that's different maybe than 25 years ago? 25 years ago, we were dealing, I think probably the biggest demographic of the school was second career women mm-hmm. um, who um, had left earlier careers and they were living through the renaissance of women's leadership in the church thanks to the ordination of women. Um, I think I was sort of, we were kind of living on the fumes of that kind of movement because that already started in the 1970s. Um, So the demographic has really changed. So we don't have second career women now. We have first career women and and first career men. So that means that people are not, I think, I mean, I think that they're very uh, keyed into the life of the church, but not necessarily with a view to the life of the institution or seeking like a single career Mm -hmm. in the, you know, in the institution. That's well put. Uh, Very different from when I was entering into theological study, when I was really looking forward to the pension plan and and, and dental care and everything. So very, very different now. I had to become a professor of theology to get the dental plan. So happy about that. Harry, what's exciting about your subject matter? So I said a few words about some of the things you're doing uh, when I introduced you, uh, particularly this matter of uh, visual exegesis. I mean, um, tell us about that project, but also tell us, does that play a part now in your teaching? Are you using those kinds of uh, uh, resources when you're doing instruction in New Testament and early Christianity? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, let me just back up from the visual exegesis part. What's exciting about teaching the New Testament is that it's about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't, you know, I don't mean that in some sort of pious kind of way. 
Um, what I mean is that the death and the resurrection of Jesus call us into the travail and the suffering of the world mm -hmm. and then invite us to find life amidst the travail and the suffering mm -hmm. of the world. Mm -hmm. So what the New Testament does is that just puts that in your face. Mm -hmm. What are you living for? Mm -hmm. What are you hoping for? Mm -hmm. Where do you go to uh, find life? Mm -hmm. Where what, what should abundant living look like? Mm -hmm. The New Testament as theology in general, mm -hmm. puts that question yes. up in your face and it's really, really unavoidable. Mm -hmm. So I think that how visual exegesis uh, fits into that is that um, there's an attempt then to look at how New Testament texts try to make that graphic. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority mm -hmm. of the Roman Empire um, was illiterate. So estimates are maybe 20% of people were literate. Um, and that means that they could write their name and so on. Maybe 10% of people could read a play by Shakespeare, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, so that means that if you wanted to communicate the message, you had to do so in vivid language with lasting mm -hmm. images that people could then take away mm -hmm. with them. So mm -hmm. the texts are performative. The texts are the ancient equivalent of multimedia mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they're playing on images that one would see on the street, for example. I mean, mm. Paul says in Galatians um, that um, the crucified Jesus was shown in front of his listeners. I mean, wh what does that mean? Well, one possibility it means is that he was really describing in very, very vivid language mm. the crucifixion of Jesus that made a lasting impression on the listeners. Mm. So, and I think that um, drawing on visual imagery in classes uh, specifically ancient visual imagery gets gives gives students a sense of what it was like to be a believer mm -hmm. on the street mm -hmm. yeah you've written um, on revelation you Richard you were mentioning that you, uh, yeah. you're often asked to speak from that kind of material why do you think people kind of go there I, I'm my question right now I'm thinking of the imagery in Revelation, right? Like, the, talk about texts that have this like very visual right. kind of. Um, what is it that people are trying to say? Oh, here's someone who can speak to us about Revelation. We should hear what he has to say. What do you think they're interested in? Yeah, well, I think that in the first uh, case, it's probably just a sort of perplexed curiosity. Um, people are just kind of wonder what's going on with the Book of Revelation right. and why anybody in the mainstream church would really I mean it's sort of like the refuge of fanatics cranks and fanatics yeah. and why would anybody in the mainstream church really be interested in the book of revelation sometimes I say that I want to leave the book of revelation alone but it won't leave me alone I keep on being called back to mm, talk about this text over and over and mm. over again I mean obviously we're living in a sense of a, an apocalyptic right. age though that's a kind of a newfound consciousness in the first world. The rest of the world has been living apocalyptically now, like they've never stopped yeah, living apocalyptically. Since, yeah. Right. And so um, suddenly people are wanting to know how do we live in the face of climate change? Um, what does the book of Revelation have to tell us about that? Is the book of Revelation calling Christians to just wait for the sweet by and by that this world is... Um, destined to be thrown into the cosmic dumpster yeah. and that Jesus is going to come back and, you know, like give us a big um, salvific parachute or something like that. Um, I think that um, people are understanding that if we're going to live 
with apocalyptic right. mentalities around us, how then do we as Christians or people of God live in the midst of these great looming threats that are in front of us? Harry, one of the books that I've used in the theology course I, I teach is by a man called Daniel Migliore. And he, in the section on eschatology, he says that the problem with much of you know, the formerly mainline Christianity is that what they have to say about uh, eschatology and apocalyptic is usually, we're not that, we're not that. And uh, he makes the point that it, it may require something more of us a, a kind of positive eschatology, rather than just saying we're not them. What, what do you think of that? Oh, absolutely. Um, the best theology is apocalyptic, and I don't mean that in the sense of the best theology is theology that is sort of looking towards is Donald Trump the antichrist? Right, like charts mm-hmm. and graphs, and mm-hmm. here's exactly the, yeah, right. And yeah. you know, here you, you are. must on the timeline like, teaching Revelation. You must have people who approach you like that as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. And I have to spend a lot of time sort of disabusing them. Yeah. of a number of. So I often say, if you're wanting to know who the Antichrist is, this is not the class for you. <laughs> the European Union and the things, you know, right. all these things. Yeah. However, you might learn about the spirit of Antichrist, uh, which is actually the way the Antichrist appears in the New Testament, in First John, the spirit of Antichrist in the world, um, who is not a person, but is rather a way of being in the world, which is opposed to God's will. But back to the question about mm-hmm. apocalyptic and eschatology, I was saying that theology is apocalyptic. And what, what I mean by that is that in the sense of theology is always revelatory. Mm-hmm. It's always saying something that's true about mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. And whenever we say something that's true about the world that has to do with God, there is always then uh, a twofold move speaking here as a Lutheran, Mm -hmm. uh, one would be there is a call to repent, Mm -hmm. namely good theology brings worlds to an end, Mm -hmm. and then there is a call to cling to God's promise Mm -hmm. um, to the gospel, which is all about living fresh and new in the world, Mm -hmm. uh, expressing Mm -hmm. the uh, new heaven and the new earth that erupts into our present Mm -hmm. in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So I think that if we just leave apocalyptic and the book of Revelation to the crazy people out there, then we really renounce one of the fundamental resources that are important for our tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, th- and, and then there's another sense um, that's very, very important about apocalyptic, and that is that the social gospel movement, mm-hmm. um, its bread and butter was a way of interpreting the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. So namely this idea that we're preparing the uh, historical conditions for the second coming of Jesus. And we're trying to do that by creating a more just social order so that when Jesus finally comes, Jesus will be right at home mm-hmm. here. And um, that would be kind of a more traditional way of thinking about that. Another mm-hmm. way of thinking about that would be that we're sort of preparing a spiritual reign of Christ, mm-hmm. a kind mm-hmm. of a politically realized secular, mm-hmm. um, um, expression of the reign of Jesus mm-hmm. under differing mm-hmm. terms or demythologized mm-hmm. as it mm-hmm. were. And I think that because the church is no longer able to cooperate with mm-hmm. the state in the way it mm-hmm. used to, that means mm-hmm. that that vision of the social gospel mm-hmm. has fallen on pretty hard times. So what are Christians going to do then with their desires for social justice and how do these things Mm -hmm. then relate to theologies, Mm -hmm. eschatological theologies? Mm -hmm. 
So it's absolutely timely. It's, you know, it's, it's really, really very, very pressing. It seems to me like you're saying that when it comes to eschatology and how the book of Revelation and other parts of the New Testament are used, that the, the, the twin sort of dangers would be on the one hand, there's nothing we can do, and so let's just wait it out until God smokes the place, or else it's all up to us. We're mm-hmm. going to do everything. And do you find those both at play in the classroom? Uh, they can be. I think that less than they used to be. Mm. I think it used to be if I had a hammer, I'd hammer out justice. I'd mm-hmm. hammer out love between mm-hmm. my brothers and my sisters, mm-hmm. you know, real sort of Woodstock hippy-dippy kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that there's not that kind of um, sensibility that it's all up to us or that those ideas are quickly laid to rest. Mm-hmm. Once I think students get to understand the depth of theology mm. and the excitement about theology that is really more about um, wanting what the secular world wants to, but tying a big sort of theologically laden ribbon around it and mm-hmm. saying, we want that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of like um, a little bit uh, boring. Mm-hmm. And there's so much more that can be said theologically than... Mm-hmm whatever our best secular hopes and ideals are, which, you know, I mean, things like Medicare and so on, those are great and beautiful secular ideals. Mm -hmm. I don't want to diminish those. I'm just saying that Mm -hmm. we have other things to say Mm -hmm. than that, Mm -hmm. that propel us into the world. You know, thinking about those apocalyptic images and and the book of Revelation, and one of the things you've spoken and written about as well is uh, the matter of violence and how it's represented in, in antiquity um, what are you feeling about that these days like I look around and just see you know violence is everywhere still and the political landscape whatever else and how does your um, learning and teaching on violence and its representation in antiquity inform because you're talking about theology facing the world inform what you think and see of violence now right so we um, we've come out of the bloodiest um century in recorded history and um, so we've come out of a period of extreme violence and now we're living through in the last 20 years of course since 9-11 we've been implicated um, either directly or indirectly into a very very violent global order and um, the thing about apocalyptic and the thing about the attention to violence in the New Testament is that there is never an endorsement of violence. Mm. There is rather a call to stand with the violated. And that's why the crucified Jesus is at the very heart of the New Testament, at the very, very heart of the New Testament. So that um, it, is, it, it is not to perpetuate violence. It is rather to oppose violence, to diminish violence, and to be especially in solidarity with the violated. Now, unfortunately, the New Testament went through quite a journey through its process of canonization and then through its process of being adopted by the Roman imperial order so that the um, violence of the book of, of, of the New Testament in, gener- in, in, in general as, as well as their violent images in the canon in general became kind of legitimations mm-hmm. for imperial violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, the residential schools would be a good example of a sort of an attempt to wed with the state in order to create a more just order, but 
deploying a kind of a systematic institutionalized violence against First Nations people. So that is a mishandling and misreading and a complete betrayal of what the New Testament is about. Uh, and the call of the New Testament is to call that kind of abuse of power to account and then to stand with the people who are violated. And that also means especially, I think, also that, that that is also the case when religion, especially bad religion, is used to perpetuate violence. That's just what I'm thinking, like the how branches of our Christian faith, expression, church, or whatever, have, I would say, I, I don't, I'm not in them, so, but looking from, from the outside, looking and thinking there's clearly branches of our Christian faith who see it as their duty to be the perpetrators of violence now, like sanction, state violence, whatever you're saying. But Absolutely. what you're, I'm like, I'm picturing being a student in, in one of your classes then and hearing some of this, how freeing it would be <laughs> to hear, because I think you're mentioning students are younger too, to see, oh, you know, maybe they grew up thinking that Christianity was a very violent right. religion, right? And so right. to hear from you, you know, let's walk through how this is it's just, Fascinating stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in, fact, in fact, I have a, 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 a litmus test in my classes called the Greenberg litmus test, and it's from uh, um, a uh, famous uh, Holocaust theologian mm-hmm. um, called uh, Pillar of Cloud and uh, Pillar of Smoke, and it's all about doing theology after the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And Greenberg's um, litmus test for a theological statement is this. We should say nothing about God or anything for that matter that we could not say before people who are being incinerated in gas ovens. Mm -hmm. That's stark, right? But it's sort of like a BS meter. Mm. Uh, And I think that it says that, well, where we are going to talk about God is in a world of violence, and we're going to be making claims about God and ourselves and the world around us that makes sense in a world of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I find that that kind of litmus test keeps me to, holds me yeah. to account about what I'm wanting There's to a, say about God. Uh, I don't, you guys would know where he's from more. David Gushy, David Gushy. Anyway, he, um, was a book he's writing on kind of the new Christianity and such. He, he's obviously referring to the same person, the Greenberg test. He calls it the burning baby test, yeah. which is the same thing. At Auschwitz or wherever, when they threw a child on a fire, living children. Yeah, you have to. Your theological talk has to be able to be done in in the shadow of this, and it does. But when you say then, so how you're going to speak about violence particularly matters with this. I think it's fascinating. So, Harry, do you find that um, some students um, that that come into your class and that you're you're teaching these things through, there's some work of uh, rehabilitating. Uh, theological vocabulary that is necessary um, because people have experienced the New Testament as a kind of source of violence or had it weaponized and used against their people group, their gender identification, uh, that kind of thing. Do, do you find you have to do some work of redress in that, in that area? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, on multiple levels. I think on one level, the first level is that um, liberal mainstream Christians are really, they kind of want to be like Jesus and they read the New Testament as how to be like Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to say that the New Testament is you know, not really about how to be like the historical Jesus. There's a lot in the New Testament about how to be like the crucified and raised Jesus. Mm-hmm. 
and that the story that the Gospels tell us about are stories that are seen through the light of the cross and the resurrection. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, that means that the sort of the imitation, the exemplarist, what we would call in theology and exemplarist mm -hmm. Christology, mm -hmm. Jesus is a good moral example, mm -hmm. um, that has to be addressed. And sometimes um, also there has to be a redress because this good historical Jesus uh, is, of course, he's a feminist and he's against purity and he's for the inclusion of everybody and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, and the result then is that this historical Jesus now suddenly becomes just a sort of a mirror of how <laughs> we yeah. think everybody <laughs> should right. be in the world, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. So, you know, the old, the old tag about looking down the long well of history mm -hmm. towards the historical Jesus and seeing ourselves mm -hmm. reflected mm -hmm. uh, faintly back to us. Mm -hmm. so, so there has to be an enormous amount of redress mm -hmm. that for students to be convinced that however important Jesus of Nazareth as a historical rabbi is, mm -hmm. far more important is the church's proclamation about the crucified rabbi who's now raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. That's the one mm -hmm. who we're following. And ethics arrive out of that. Ethics don't arise out of an imitation of a great man historical figure. Ethics rather arise out of that proclamation. Mm -hmm. So that requires a re-enchantment of theological mm -hmm. language. Mm -hmm. Students mm -hmm. simply don't recognize how enchanting that mm -hmm. theological language is and are how much it calls for Do you find students are mostly open to that? I think that once students key into that, they are really turned on by that. Yeah. Super, so super they maybe, turned on maybe come that. in with a program of some kind. Exactly. Then, they oh, come in with a program. Yeah. Um, they come in, uh, oftentimes they come in as sort of a justice warrior kind of program. Mm -hmm. And I don't want it all to... Which um, is great in a way. You know, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm yeah. not against justice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that there's just so much more mm -hmm. that Christian theology does for the cause of justice than wanting to be like Jesus. Well, but that's really good. You had a, I was reading something, in, again, in some biographical material, um, and something stood out to me. So I haven't asked you this in advance, so I don't know that you, but I loved it and so wanted to know more about it. You, you uh, said that theological study is a call to intimacy. That's right. What do you mean by that? And that sounds sure interesting and more. Well, let me get sort of groovy with you and quote Meister Eckhart. Uh, so uh, Meister Eckhart, okay. the uh, 13th century uh, German mystical theologian, he once said that um, uh, God is uh, never far away from us and the, the farthest away that God ever leaves us is at the door. Sort of a kind of a faint allusion to Revelation yeah. uh, chapter stand 3, Behold, the, I stand yeah. at the door and knock. Mm -hmm. So there is then, so in the study of theology, we are being called to the deepest the deepest parts of ourselves and we are called to engage the world in the deepest parts of the world that's deeply deeply intimate so that's beyond reason that's beyond feeling um, in the early Christian church uh, in the third and the fourth centuries especially in the mystical Christian tradition mm -hmm. the idea is that we are the image and the likeness of God the more that we grow into the likeness of God the more we grow into ourself, right? Because if we are the image of God, the more that we know God, the more we right. know what we're called to be ourselves. So one of my favorite theologians, Andrew Louth, 
um, an Orthodox uh, British theologian, he says that in the Christian mystical tradition, the movement inward is the movement outward. So the movement right. inward into a knowledge of the self as in the likeness of God to which we're called to conform ourselves to the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, is a call outward into intimacy with our neighbor. Um, and so that's why uh, theology at its best is very, very intimate. So I, you know, I don't mean that in a kind of a touchy-feely, let's no. get in a circle and talk about our feelings kind of way. That's not really what I mean no. about intimacy. I mean about, um, um, and Richard may not like this, but but <laughs> a, a sort of a Tillichian ground of being okay. uh, yeah. type type way about thinking about things. But you must then, you know, this is beyond stuff that can be graded or anything like that. Oh, right? absolutely. Because I, I, I think... A student, and you can't conjure this up, right? But you must see when students kind of make that move. When, oh, this has gone from somebody just studying something to, oh, there's a, there's an intimacy here now that is, and that must be such a privilege as a theological professor to, yeah. <laughs> to know that you can be kind of around for that. I was going to say part of it even, but in a way that doesn't even belong to you then, right? That's like the student and this and what they are mm -hmm. studying, and, and off they go, in a sense, right? It, it just must feel great. It's uh, incredibly rewarding, um, and um, it's the most rewarding part of my job. So in my classes, uh, I think all of us at VST, we have students do a lot of journaling, um, but one of the things that I do in my classes in journaling is that I have students write reflections on the lectures, and this is to avoid uh, the temptation for students simply to go down some kind of intellectual adventure. Um, there is an attempt always then to bring um, what I would call a disciplined reading of the New Testament, which in mm -hmm. contemporary parlance is a critical reading of the New Testament, mm -hmm. um, but a disciplined uh, reading of the New Testament to bear on questions of life and death and theological identity. Um, so... Um, I mean, biblical says is often about mastering methods, techniques, exegesis, and so on and so forth. And sometimes it can look like just a checklist of things that you need to do to work through a text or something like that. But um, really, the meal is not the methods. The meal is the outcome of all of the methods being deployed in a way that is life-giving and so on. And so we're really then to enter into the classroom and to engage students um, at these deeper existential levels is, uh, uh, they, they, they pay me. They wouldn't have to pay me to do yeah. that. They, I don't want to say that too much, but they wouldn't have to pay <laughs> I'm me. I'm making Richard notes here. Yeah. Eric, yeah, taking that down. Thank you. Right, Eric seriously. would do this for free. <laughs> I'm, so, sure, I'm sure that's how you feel too, Richard, that they wouldn't necessarily have to pay you to do this because right. it's so rewarding, right? But I do it for them. This, <laughs> yes, this, this can be edited. <laughs> um, Harry, you, so you, you're talking a bit about the classroom now. So, I mean, this is interesting. What would you say? So we talked a little bit about the, the changing of the kinds of students we have. But talk a little bit about the classroom experience. So we've just, um, we've just broached the whole notion of, um, as you were speaking, I was thinking the word koinonia, of a kind of participation in the life of God. Right. Um, it is, and, and that's that sort of sense of intimacy you're articulating. Um, how do, what do you do in the classroom to encourage that, to pour accelerant on it, to, to, to encourage students to not just learn about God, but to know God? That's very difficult. Um, I pray at the start of every class. Um, I'm unabashed about my own theological confessions. Um, in a religious studies classroom, 
um, or that's one of the advantages of being a theological school mm -hmm. that's not embedded in a religious studies department in the way that a lot of other mm -hmm. um, schools of theology are around the world is that we don't have to check our um, prejudices in the best sense mm -hmm. of the word, our, our, our convictions at the door. Mm. We can rather, we, we can talk about our own faith journey. Mm -hmm. So I think I try to do that autobiographically. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I invite students into a life of prayer and into a life of the reading of scripture. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I do that also by exciting students. Yeah. Um, theology, um, good theology is very provocative. Mm -hmm. It's very, very provocative. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, I never thought of that. Yeah. I never saw that before. Mm -hmm. And that propels people into excitement. Um, and then to wed that to an understanding of the worship of God as crucified and raised um, means also an invitation into the koinonia of God. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how, mm -hmm. I hope that's what happens anyway. Mm -hmm. I've, I've just been thinking for you guys who are professors and teaching and you mentioned prayer. Um, I'm just picturing like at the front of a classroom where the, not just you know, the, the the gift of being able to pray before a class or whatever, but that, and not that you break away from teaching, but while you're teaching, realizing that you're praying too, right? Of course. That's, yeah, it's yeah. such a, a beautiful, and not to have to check that, to kind of, I mean, you could do that any, anywhere. Yeah, because, yeah. You know, yeah. But it's such a, it's such a valuable thing in a place like this to. Sure, well, in 1 Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians um, uh, twelve twenty seven, one of the gifts is teaching. Right, so it's a charismatic gift. That is, say, it's a spirit-given yeah. gift to be a teacher. And so, yes, teaching is an act of worship. It really is. Uh, it's an act of participation in the life of God through the gift of teaching that the Spirit has given. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think I, you know, we don't take up a collection, though sometimes after right. some of my uh, lectures I do, they feel I've been preaching <laughs> and I should take up a collection. But, but generally speaking, I, I see it as a kind of a, it's, it's, it's a way of living the life of God in the world for me. I know that from like preaching as well, right? And you guys would know this too, that um, if, if people say you have the uh, spiritual gift of teaching or preaching and you... Um, you can tell the difference, even all the preparation, all the whatever that you do, and then you're just you're caught up yourself in that. Absolutely. In that, oh, this, the spirit is present here, in what's happening, and and then it's just a response of gratitude. That mm -hmm. uh, and in the educational enterprise, to you know, there must be a lot of that. I can feel that around here, just gratitude on the part of the mm -hmm. professors and the students. But I think largely because of what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I want to ask one thing about uh, another um, area of your work, and that's the the iconography. I mean, we talked about the violence and the, one of the things I was interested in, in thinking about this before was the temporary nature of most of the images in our lives right now, mm. whether for people, if it's social media or like images just come and go now. We were talking about the project through King's College, London, the, uh, the visual commentary. And uh, how have you experienced that shift that like now, so the example would be, we take more photos than ever but most people never look at their photos. Or if they do, it's like this, right? We used to develop photos or make books out of them and stuff more. And um, how does that, the nature, just the contemporary cultural nature of how we treat images differently, how does that impact how and what you teach? That's a really great question. Um, 
and theologically, I think that the temporary nature of images results in a much more distant relationship with the world so that the visual world is commodified and can be snapped and then it can be put on Snapchat or done whatever with and then easily forgotten. And that then the way that one goes through the world is through a series of entertaining yeah. pictures. And another, so one, on. another one, another one, another yeah. one, another one. So that these texts are calling us to abide in images. They're abiding to, they're calling us to situate ourselves in images and to understand our situatedness within them and then to see the world through those images. Um, that is, I think, probably a little bit of a challenge mm. uh, for really tech-savvy people to kind of slow down and be and live within those images. It's challenge, a challenge and potentially gift, right? It, yeah, absolutely, yeah. a gift, because it recalls us, it, it calls us into a way of being kind of in the still center of the universe, uh, a way of being still mm. in the world and being still in the life of God as um, reflected in the image of God, who is Jesus. Um, Harry, just a, a question. We, we've been touching on some of these things, but uh, maybe to give you a, a chance to say it explicitly, what, what do you find is the, as a professor, is the biggest challenge now? I mean, wh when you think about you know, who you have as students and your responsibility uh, to teach New Testament, early Christian studies, what's the... What's the um, what, what, what's the challenge? The difficulties that that we're addressing as theological educators that you um, are coping with and finding ways forward about. So much to say, so little time. <laughs> um, so that it seems that um, the the more, as you know, the more the more we learn about theology, the less we know, mm. and the more we learn, at least the, the more I learn about the Bible and the early church, the less I know. Mm -hmm. And so what to say, what to pick. It's like a massive buffet, mm -hmm. how, to, how to give a taste and how to give a taste in a way that whets the appetite mm -hmm. so that you want more of this. Mm -hmm. um, there's that. Then there's the aspect in the mainstream, um, more liberal Protestant church of biblical illiteracy. Mm -hmm. um, I love my evangelical students because they memorize the Bible. <laughs> so you can, you can refer to a verse. And exactly right. Yeah. And I can refer to a verse and then I can talk about how there's different translations of that verse or there. there's different ways of understanding that verse and so on and so forth. So there's a kind of a, um, the, there's, there's a platform that it's like I like a prerequisite lift. almost. Exactly, yeah. exactly, where I can't assume that. But that's different. But I think that's really changing now. I've noticed because we're having students who are coming in for whom being in the life of the church has been something that hasn't been so cultural, but is actually quite sort of countercultural and right. even mm -hmm. a curiosity, if not an abomination, to their friends. Okay. Um, that means that they take things like reading the Bible and knowing the Bible and so on and so forth very very seriously mm -hmm. um but biblical literacy is is has been a challenge for me and so what if we turned that around and said so what's your i mean uh, what are some of the greatest delights of teaching theology these days at vst 
uh, it's that people understand that theology is a matter of life and death, mm. that the world around us right now is a world that is in a state of mm. crisis, mm-hmm. and that theology really, really matters. Mm. I don't know how much the death and the resurrection of Jesus mean to people who have got it all worked out, thank you very much, and, mm. you know, sort of I send my kid off to Sunday school so they'll get good moral teaching they'll, they'll you know they'll learn morals in Sunday school is because there are a lot a lot of churches that don't have Sunday schools anymore mm-hmm. and you can't really do that mm-hmm. um, so that people are understanding that in this moment of crisis that the world is facing how then are we going to live in this world mm-hmm. and how does theology mm-hmm. equip us to live in in the world that is really mm-hmm. the most exciting thing people really understand that people really get that you think students come sort of hungry for that because it's not uh, just a few more ideas, but this is about life in the world right now. Absolutely. And they understand that a lot of them are converts. Mm -hmm. They understand it's about conversion. It's about a lifelong conversion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Is there something you like particularly? Like I was wondering what you like about now, this 25-year you know, 25 years you've been teaching here. Um, so I'm not looking to, you know, value this time above any other time, but I'll ask the question in that way anyway. Why is now the best time to teach here? Now is the best time to teach here for me because of the, really, the nature of the students that that, that we have. I mean, I suppose you could have asked me in 1995 why it's now. I think I might have answered this question the same way because of the nature of right. the students that we yeah. have here. But right now... Um, we have um, younger students who are coming to our school, students who don't necessarily come out of a Christian imagination, mm-hmm. um, students who are n- have newly come to the faith, who are excited about their faith in, in, in new ways. It's not to say that students back then were not right. excited about their faith. It's just a but different you, kind just of excitement. You feel now, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think also, um, if I may say, uh, it's been good for us to leave that old building behind. Uh, right, so it was a building that's not far from where we're sitting exactly now. Exactly right. Was like the, it's now Commerce, right? It is. Bankers I love that it's, so it's an old stone building that looks from like... From God it. to Mammon. Yeah, that's and, and right. It's but it's great because that's the real yeah. religion in a way, right? Yeah, now, right. So that's let, right. let them have it. <laughs> so sort of a neo-Gothic um, building that was called the Castle. And I think there was a kind of an identity that was implicit in that with a sort of an institutional, state-wed kind of mm-hmm. Christian religion. And I think we've kind of left that building, and in it took a lot of courage to leave that building. Um, when did you guys leave that? About five and a half years okay. ago. Mm-hmm. Five and a half years ago. It took an enormous amount of courage to do that. Oh, yeah. Um, and to come into this newer building that has a much more contemporary feel about it, has a lot more windows, there's a lot more light in this building. Um, it's a lighter building. Uh, and it feels like this is a new way of facing mm-hmm. into the world. So that's a... I like that. I like that you said that because it is so different, right? I remember even just going and visiting in the in yeah. the old building, and yeah, and yet there was a pride almost because it's this beautiful old mm-hmm. 
thing. I elsewhere. think when we moved, it was you, Harry, who said, it's difficult to teach post-colonial theology in a castle. That's right, yes, <laughs> that's right, I did say that. Yes, that's right. But now you're facing, like here in this building, we're here today recording, and there's classes ongoing, and there's, but not here. No, they're, they're, uh, they're online. Yeah. They're online. So that's interesting in terms of these shifts too, right? The yeah. new challenges that you face. Yeah. How have you done with that? I've, I've liked it a lot, actually. Yeah. I've liked it a lot. Firstly, it means that students don't have to sell the farm to come to school mm. to live here in very, very expensive Vancouver. That's given me access into a very wide group of students from around the world. I mean, I've got a student in Singapore. I've got several students in Indonesia. I have a student from East Africa. Um, I have students from all over the place, and that gives a much more dynamic sense that we are, as Christians, and there are others who are not Christian in the class, but we are all part of a global community. Uh, so often it seems to me, especially, say, in the 90s, um, here at the school, people would measure Christianity by what was happening in North America, but and specifically in Western Canada, one might say. But what's happening in Western Canada is just the smallest microscopic drop of what's happening with the people of God around the world. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot to learn from, mm -hmm. from people from all over the world. Um, and that's been very, very instructive. What would be one thing we're learning? I mean, I find this fascinating because I, I'm teaching in the same context mm -hmm. and the, all of the, the, the familiar markers are different. Um, I'm just curious, Harry, about w what you find those international students are bringing that is um, close to essential or certainly life-giving to us uh, here in, in a different part of the world. Well, there's very much a profound sense of the activity of God in the world, mm. and there's much less of a notion that we should rely upon the secular order to furnish all of the goods mm. of the world. I, I can give a great example that's probably mm -hmm. provocative. I was talking about exorcism mm -hmm. in class. And, you know, the first world students are sort of rolling their eyes at this sort of outmoded way of thinking about mental illness in the ancient world. And I've got students who um, exorcism is a kind of a thing that happens a lot. That's not an odd sort of notion, right? that gives a very different feel of how that the must, world is very different. But that, I'm just picturing that this is not only f between professor and student, mm -hmm. but what a blessing for the students to be able to meet students from, I picture somebody, Absolutely. you know, sitting in their Zoom class and then going and talking to their spouse or whatever and saying like, oh, I was just sitting with somebody from Indonesia or wherever it is somewhere. And, and I picture that breakout room where you have those two people. Right. Yes, exactly. Speaking together. Exactly. It's fascinating. Yeah. So that kind of exchange and that sort of cross-pollination is very rich for students. It's, but it's also very rich for me. I had a student last year, I was teaching um, my Paul class, and uh, we were talking about women and um, women, uh, Paul's advice to women who are married to unbeliever, believing women who are married to unbelievers, and if the unbeliever wants a, a divorce, then go ahead and give him a divorce kind of thing. Then I had a student from India who's telling me about how her friend um, is married a Hindu fellow and how she needs to keep her faith secret and so on and how this is causing all sorts of problems in the family. Um, so right there, and then she brings all of this up in the middle of class, right? 
And so here we have a kind of a, 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 a sort of a window into the ancient urban world of this minority religion in this very sort of dynamic, multi-religious world. Mm -hmm. And then she's just talking about this as though this is sort of front page news uh, every day. Yeah. You know, so that that's really quite amazing. Mm. Quite amazing. That's delightful. Well, Harry, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us today. This has been fascinating to hear uh, uh, about what you do, but your obvious love and enthusiasm for what you do here at the Vancouver School of Theology. And as the principal, I'm very grateful for that. It matters a lot to the life and vibrancy of our school. I'm really grateful to Todd for, uh, yeah, thanks, Todd. for his uh, wonderful skills uh, here today. Uh, uh, and also to Allison Williams, who yeah, thank you, is Allison. Uh, facilitating this whole process. Al Allison is a student here at the Vancouver Vancouver School of Theology. Yay. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bruderholtz is a production of the Vancouver School of Theology. For more information about VST, visit vst.edu. Thanks for listening to Bruderholtz. Bruderholtz.